Genre. And welcome to the Protagonist Podcast, where each week we look at a great character in a great story. I'm Joe Dorowski, and this week we are discussing Esther, Susan, and Daisy from the graphic novel Giant Days. And joining me for the discussion is first-time guest Wayne Wise. Welcome, Wayne. Hey, thanks for having me. I'm I'm happy to be here, finally. (laughs) Yeah, very glad to have you on. It almost feels like we've had you on, because I've been on a podcast with you before over on Mox Popcast. You know, we're we're in the same podcaster circle. Very much so, yeah. Never had actually had you on. Thanks. And this is a series that uh, you um, have mentioned over on Vox Popcast, and we actually had a request uh, that we talked about it. So when we, uh, when I was uh, looking around for someone to come on, um, it, uh, Mav in particular said, "Oh, make sure you get <laughs> you, you get Wayne on for that." I was like, "Oh, right, right, right." <laughs> yeah, just background for your listeners: I, I worked at a comic shop here in Pittsburgh uh, for 22 years. Shop called Phantom of the Attic. Um, Nominated for an Eisner in 2009. Uh, and I was like primarily the customer service guy. I read the books. I got to know our customers. Uh, people put a tremendous amount of faith in my recommendations. And you know, like I, Giant Days was a book that took a little bit of time to click for me. But when mm-hmm. it did, I was just shoving it in front of everybody who walked through the door. Uh, just, and I, I admittedly it's, uh, and maybe I'm getting ahead of ourselves here, but, uh, I, I don't think I am the intended demographic for this. Uh, you know, it's three college girls in great Britain and their wacky adventures. And I'm a 60 year old man, uh, so, <laughs> but, uh, we'll, we'll get into my reasons as we get. Well, there. that's why I'm here to, yeah. to talk about it. Right. As yeah. a, <laughs> a 41 year old man, <laughs> American. Too, yes. Right. 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 Well, as you noted, uh, College Days does tell the story of Esther, Susan, and Daisy, uh, three college-age girls in Great Britain. Uh, This series began as a webcomic that transitioned to comic books and then uh, collections as trade paperbacks that often get referred to as graphic novels. It was written by John Allison with art by Max Saren and Lisa Treeman, that is spelled T-R-E-I-M-A-N. And it tells the story of uh, these roommates navigating college and accompanying social issues and drama, lots of social drama. Uh, yes. <laughs> that happens. Yeah. Um, and at least, so I've only read the first collection, which is the mm-hmm. first four issues. And I have to say, it was a little bit refreshing to read what uh, starts out as an uh, like grounded uh, college story and does not introduce supernatural elements or demons or witchcraft. Mm-hmm. It's just like, oh, no, just college well, students. And, and, and let me just address that up front. I mean, John yeah. Allison's universe, he started doing web comics in like the late 1990s. There's a series called Bobbins that turned into other things. He has developed this vast, vast universe of characters and stories. And Giant Days is incredibly grounded in the real world, and it's part of that universe, and the rest of his universe is crazy and full of Mm -hmm. aliens and monsters and demons and mythological creatures and a character who was briefly Queen of Hell, and exists in the same universe as as Giant Days. Um, As Giant Days progresses, it never really steps out of that grounded part of the world. There are some some scenes that are a little surreal, but they can usually Mm be uh, chalked up to alcohol, drugs, or lack of sleep. (laughs) But I I find that fascinating that he chose this one series to do in this really very grounded way. But uh, he has guest stars and and whatever from his larger world who have had very different experiences. 
That's interesting because one thing that I really enjoyed was like how just grounded this particular uh, series felt. Um, and I like that uh, even in a larger world that has so many other elements, he, he chose to maintain that tone for this mm-hmm. series. Well, it, um, the way I described it, I did a blog post on this three or four years ago. It's my, my thoughts on the series. And I described it as in terms of comics, it's, it feels like Archie comics, only more adult. It has that cartoony. These are young people and their wacky adventures, but it's certainly more adult than, than Archie is. It also reminds me very much of Love and Rockets, which is one of my mm-hmm. all-time favorite series, but it's significantly less adult than Love and Rockets. So it hits this sweet spot between Archie and Love and Rockets. Uh, and I think there are obvious comparisons to, to be drawn between those two as well. And as someone who loves both of those series, Giant Days just really kind of hit a number of elements from both of those series that, that make them work for me and, and brought something completely new to it. So. Yeah, um, I, I guess I'll say some of my thoughts about the tone of everything yeah. once we we've done a synopsis. Yeah. But I, I agree that that's a good description. Of, yeah, and of both of those worlds have have elements of the fantastic in them. You know, Archie at any given moment, Bigfoot can show up or or whatever. You or know? Sabrina the teenage or, witch. Or Sabrina the teenage over. witch, exactly right. <laughs> um, and Love and Rockets. You know, there are superheroes and spaceships. And while that got pushed to the side over a lot of the issues in recent years it's been acknowledged again that that stuff is still there as part of that world Mm -hmm. well this series uh giant days um as as you've kind of said is part of this larger world of john allison's web comics uh the main one at least that this one spun off of from what i could see was called scary go round is that right scary go round um yeah bobbins kind of led into scary go round uh scary go round led into bad machinery uh scary go round and the others were uh, about a lot of his his adult characters, Bad Machinery started following the adventures of uh, basically middle school kids, a, a group of middle school kids uh, solving mysteries. It has been compared to Scooby Doo, and I've read that John Allison hates that comparison. But it's kids solving mysteries. Um, mm-hmm. The entirety of Giant Days takes place between like volume seven and nine of Bad Machinery. He allows his characters to age and grow. Uh, one of the main characters in Bad Machinery is uh, Lottie Grote, Charlotte Lottie. And uh, Lottie has a guest appearance in Giant Days later in the series when she's about 11. Um, at, by the end of, of Matt Bad Machinery, Lottie is in high school. And he's still doing new stories of Lottie now that she's like 20 uh, online. And uh, some other, some boom public series called Wicked Things starred Lottie. So yeah, so the entirety of Giant Days takes place in there. I I was doing a little research ahead of time, and if you if I'm getting ahead of your synopsis or whatever, no, no, this is the I, trivia I, section. I, I, so this I, is all what yeah, we're here for. Right my now. my understanding, he was doing Bad Machinery as an online comic. It has all been published by uh, in graphic novel trade paperbacks by Oni Press, and they're wonderful. I I love Bad Machinery as well. Uh, Allison wrote and drew all of Bad Machinery. During the production of that, he took a couple breaks and he did three short stories called Giant Days that introduced Daisy and Susan and brought uh, Esther in from Scary Ground. And he did three short stories of that. The first issue of Giant Days picks up after those three short stories. And in that first issue, which you just read, um, there's like this little brief synopsis of things that had happened to them prior to this. 
mm-hmm. like there's like four panels saying right. you know, Esther got a tattoo and you know <laughs> so those are the stories that took place in those three one shots that he did while Bad Machine was being published they were later collected as a trade paperback called Early Registration so you can pick that up um, chronologically it takes place before volume one that's really interesting because uh, when I read it in here, it just felt like flavor telling you that you're starting in media res in a, in a fleshed out story world. And that's, and that's how I read it initially as well. And, and I, mm-hmm. I like that just the whole idea that yes, these characters have had a life before this. Yeah. And that's fine. You know, just to, to establish something about them and who they were. And I thought it worked fine without ever having read early registration. Oh, absolutely. I didn't even think to like, go look for mm-hmm. these stories actually been told anywhere. I just thought it was uh just a little snapshot. Yeah. In well, and I read probably the first half of Giant Days, the the entire series, knowing nothing about any of the rest of this larger world. I was just reading it as a series, and I started poking around online. It's like, oh, what's this? Uh-huh. <laughs> Wait, that there's ten volumes of bad machinery. Bad machinery. What? <laughs> so, um, it's just a plethora of work out there. If you enjoy Giant Days, there is so much more out there in that world. Um, so this series uh, began uh, as that webcomic then self-published in physical form as an indie comic book, but then Boom Studios picked it up for what was initially a six-issue miniseries and then became an ongoing comic book series. I think it ran in 50-some-odd issues, is that right? Something, yeah, something like that. Yeah. I think it's uh, 10 volumes of four issues each. Yeah, and now, now it's maybe, all been connect- maybe, collected as those trade paperbacks. Yeah. Um, and the series was nominated for several Eisner Awards, and it won two during its run. And Lisa Trayman is a Disney uh, animator, and that gives the series this artistic style that is distinct from a lot of both indie comics and uh, mainstream uh, publisher comics. Uh, it's um, just very warm and appealing, the, mm-hmm. the shape and look of all these characters. Most of the characters are designed initially by John Allison, who drew most of the web comics. So the the trade paperbacks will have a lot of sketch work in there from mm-hmm. Lisa and as well as John and Max when Max takes over the series uh, on a full time basis. I I like all of them. I'm particularly drawn to to Max's work. Their stuff just the characters feel more fleshed out, more more rounded. They are incredibly cartoony and expressive just their anatomy and facial expressions can go wildly you know tex avery cartoon like expressive but these characters are never off model uh it's like i while i like uh listerine stuff um max's i don't know it's like john's designs as visualized through lissa gave them a a form that max just then took and made their own right um, yeah and i don't know how to describe that any better it just i well mm-hmm. i like all of them max's stuff just really really appeals to me it's just the the line work is so clean with with their stuff yeah it was um on the trade paperback it uh <clears throat> it's listed as allison tremaine and kogar uh but then i was like i think these issues are all yeah. uh tremaine that, yeah. that i've read right yeah um, but even like the side characters, like everyone is so distinctive. Like there's one character which has his mustache and just like the facial look of that character with that <laughs> Ma- mustache is McGraw. so fantastic. Yeah, McGraw, he plays a significant role in the entire series. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, and, and for all the wackiness, it's um, there's also these just deeply touching moments. I mean, spoilers. I, are we in a spoiler place yet or should I wait for that? Oh, you're you're fine. Go ahead. Okay. Um, in over the course of the series, McGraw's father dies and there's mm-hmm. just some marvelous 
pages of grief, him dealing with grief um, in, you know, in this series that has so many wacky, goofy moments. There are these very real, very human, very touching moments. And that balance, that can be really hard to achieve, uh, particularly in a series where you can have just really incredibly cartoonish work. It can be difficult for a lot of creators to dial that back and make something really very real and very human. And I think he's just so masterful at that. All right. Well, we're about to jump into the uh, spoiler discussion of these four issues. But before we do that, listeners, we want to thank you for downloading this episode. And we especially want to thank any of you who are supporting us on Patreon. If you'd like to support us financially, I invite you to go to patreon.com slash protagonist and support our show with at least a dollar per month. And the cost of podcasting has gone up a little bit uh, in, the, in the last little while. Uh, some things that were free for us to use are no longer free. So we really appreciate any supporters. Uh, and any supporters on Patreon at any level receive access to our special quick casts, which are shorter monthly episodes and we talk about the media that we've been consuming that we are not yet covering as full episodes of the podcast and we also give updates on our fantasy box office game and all patrons who support us with five dollars per month or more get to choose a topic for us to discuss okay on to uh the uh spoiler discussion of the first four issues of giant days three friends share dorm at college there's daisy uh wooten who is nice and a touch naive when we first meet her. She was homeschooled and college is exposing her to many things that she was sheltered from previously. Esther de Groot is an edgier goth girl who attracts drama. And Susan Ptolemy is a smart, hardworking student who considers herself possessed of more common sense than anyone else that she's met, but maybe has a little bit more drama to her than she'd like to admit. Uh, Esther is offended when Susan says that Esther is the source of all the drama and she vows to go a week with no drama. Uh, Susan then promptly runs into a man named McGraw and the awkward tension between them is palpable and Susan refuses to talk about why things are so strained between her and McGraw. Susan spirals and Daisy wants to talk to her about it, but Susan's not ready. Finally, Susan decides that she's going to open up and she goes to talk to Daisy, but catches Daisy watching something on the computer that Daisy is embarrassed about. And Susan freaks out about, uh, or Daisy, uh, freaks out about being caught. We find a boy named Ed who is McGraw's friend. He has a crush on Esther that night. Daisy confesses that she was watching napkin folding videos online. She likes the soothing sounds they make issue. Number two, uh, Daisy, Susan and Esther get, a nasty cold after being sneezed on. And that's like, I was thinking about it when I was writing the summary. Like I read this issue and I remember enjoying it all. And I actually read it a couple weeks ago because we we had been planning to record a little bit previously, but it didn't quite work out. So we we shifted. Uh, and so I reread it today to write up the summary. I'm like, really, this whole issue is just about three people having a cold. <laughs> yeah, very much so. <laughs> <laughs> and there's and, not much else. And it's how they react to the cold that we're learning uh, something about each one of their characters uh, and what their experiences are. So like great insights, but for a second issue in a series, uh, <laughs> that's not like the heavy or, or like a, you know, a big, big plot selling point at all. Um, but I think it says something significant that my first time through, I didn't even really catch that there was very little that happened in this episode other than they all have a cold. Um, like I was just, I think falling in love with the world that was being built. Yeah. So a friend is going to give Daisy homeopathic medicine. Susan is going to go crazy because she can't smoke when she's all stuffed up. Esther is going to spiral because she can't moderate her body temperature. And eventually, uh, because she hasn't been able to sleep, she's just going to end up dressing strangely and wandering out into another dorm room where she hallucinates that there's some weird ritual going on. And really is just a group of friends having like a cheese, like a charcuterie board <laughs> and enjoying dinner together. Uh, Daisy takes too much of the homeopathic medicine and starts talking to birds. Someone is going to give Susan nicotine gum after she has a public meltdown about needing to smoke, but she can't. And she doesn't know who, who gave it to her. 
The end. Issue number three. <laughs> it is discovered that some pervy college men have listed Esther as number three on a list of fresh meat, the 25 hottest first years at the college. Esther dresses up professionally and goes to talk to the administration about the boys who made the list. The old white man is no help. Doesn't even see why this is a problem thinks it might be even a compliment to Esther. Uh, the creators of the list post a video offering the 10 biggest donors to their site, the phone numbers of the top 10 girls on their hot list. Esther now wants to plot re revenge. Susan dumpster dives at the house of these um, boys uh, and to, to find out some information about them. McGraw sees her doing this and she explains what's going on. He actually wants to go beat the boys up, but she tells him not to go and be a white knight. Then she takes McGraw's picture as he's leaving and she uses this picture on a published screed she makes about men. She's told this isn't even feminist. It's just misandrous, but she doesn't care. She just wants to vent about men uh, using McGraw. Like this is the worst choice, I think, in the whole series yeah. or, you know, in, the, in these issues. Yeah. Like a line was crossed here by Susan, not by McGraw yes. yep. <laughs> uh, at this point. Um, and McGraw's going to be very upset that he's become a poster boy for, uh, for, well, for, for, um, sexism, uh, essentially, uh, because of Susan posting this, the mothers of the boys who are running the site come and chew them out publicly because Susan contacted them with information she learned about them. So the mothers kind of solved the problem. Chapter four. Daisy has a new friend, and Susan asked her think Daisy has a crush on this girl, but Daisy was too sheltered to know what to do with her feelings. McGraw is angry with Susan for using his picture in her angry manifesto. Apparently, some girls are making copies of the small print run that Susan initially handed out, and so this is spreading farther and wider, wider than Susan ever intended. Daisy's friend takes her out for her birthday and gives her some drugs. Susan tells Esther that she's known McGraw forever. Uh, this is like Susan's finally revealing the drama with McGraw. Uh, she knew McGraw when they were growing up. And in their last year of high school, she asked McGraw to become her boyfriend instead of just her best friend. But he said no and started going out with another girl. That's the source of all this drama. Daisy uh, wanders home extremely high just as her grandma shows up to wish her happy birthday. Daisy survives an awkward time with her grandma by being honest about what is happening, and her grandma thinks that she's just joking <laughs> about having a wild time at college. Uh, Daisy's friend comes by to check on her. Daisy asks if this friend wants to go out on a date with her, and the friend says no. Susan McGraw reached an awkward truce. The gang sees a sign about an upcoming holiday ball, ball that is going to be hosted by the school. The end of volume one of Giant Days. Yep. Um, <laughs> a lot going on just right there. Yeah. <laughs> and, and, it, yeah. and it sets up so much about their, their characters and their personality just very quickly. Mm -hmm. Do you have a favorite one of these three characters? And I know you've read much more. So yeah, like our, know, for it, me and our audience that just yeah. listened to the summaries, we've only got four issues to go on. So you're right. You know, you, I, yeah. you might be flavored by, you know, your, your taste may be changing as, as we learn more or I, we see them grow and change. One of the things that I, I like about the series, I, Mav and I've talked about this on, on Vox Popcast, like we're both suckers for the coming of age story, considering we're both old men now. Mm -hmm. um, and there's an element of that. And I think there is that, that nostalgia factor, you know, that we all had, you know, the name of the series, Giant Days. It's just, it's referring to that time in our life when anything seems possible and you're discovering who you are as a person, you are meeting those lifelong mm -hmm. friends you know it just but but also i think the um it feels like everything the scale of every event yes. is huge yes absolutely right? so being sick and missing a, a day of class that feels like this is the world ending whereas like someone who's a little older looks back and says uh you know what yeah <laughs> it wasn't actually uh the BCL. but in that moment it's huge it's huge and so you don't want to minimize their experience like i think about this even with my younger mm -hmm. kids where like 
uh, you know, things feel like they're the biggest, biggest things in the world. And I'm, I've got to like recalibrate a little bit sometimes in the way I talk to them. Like, yeah. For them, this literally is it, the it biggest is. thing. <laughs> and, and trying to keep that in mind when you're dealing with, with younger people who are going through that. And I, and I remember that time. I remember that so strongly and how influential that is. Um, I, I've said to different people when describing the series, I, I have either been or known every one of these characters. You know, I can see elements of myself in all three of those those three main characters. Mm-hmm. I, I'm I'm drawn to to Esther. I was a bit more personality wise flamboyant um, at that time. I was never I was never a goth girl. You know, I, I never did quite as extreme as she did. I, I didn't do the drama kind of thing, but just sort of that the more outgoing in my group of friends. I a lot of my friends were just incredible introverts and I was by far the most extroverted among them. So I relate to that aspect of her. I was never as innocent as Daisy, or at least I don't remember ever being as innocent as Daisy, but there's sort of a, a wonderful innocent naivete, naivete about the world about her that I find appealing. Sort of this childlike wonder she has about things. Uh, I certainly have never been as driven as, as Susan. Uh, she's the one I relate to the least in terms of personality but I see her as essential in that triad in terms of what she brings to the the mix. Um, this, if, if anybody listens to the other podcast, they know I go off on tangents about mythology and all that sort of thing way too often, but there, there is sort of a, those three, there's that classic element of the three women, the triple goddess idea. Um, and not necessarily the mother maiden crone that is a part of it, but there are triple goddesses, the idea of, of three aspects of, a female deity uh, residing in one body, and you know, hocus pocus plays off of that, um, mm-hmm. and and that plays into this in a certain certain way that there is just this this triad of feminine energy that comes from a lot of different sources, and the way they balance each other and support each other, uh, I, I think it's just so so well thought out and so well done. Yeah, I think a lot of times when you get trios, um, and maybe it's because I've I've taught rhetoric many times uh i i often think about how characters line up into uh you know leadership or emotion or logic right mm-hmm. and so like with uh the classic star trek you got you yeah know, kirk is is uh your leadership and and spock is your logos and uh you know mccoy is your pathos or emotion uh or harry potter you know <laughs> harry yeah. is, is your leader and hermione is your logic and rod's your emotion but with this these three, like I, I think Susan probably would be your lead. It feels like the leader uh, yeah. of the group, but they actually all, I think, have some of the logic and emotion. Yeah. It's different ways that the emotion is being expressed or their their own internal logic is being expressed. That maybe isn't yeah, universal it, logic. It, it, <laughs> and, yeah, my, my background psychology, Esther's the id, Daisy's the super ego, and, and mm-hmm. Susan is the grounded ego. Yeah, I, I could definitely see that. But I, I, they don't feel like it's they've been assigned that role. Like when no. I was thinking, I'm like, okay, which one's emotion? I'm like, well, I can see Esther being the emotion and, and Daisy also being the emotion. Yeah, yeah, and they all do it. And there are, there are moments where Susan is. You know, as you get uh, through oh, the definitely. series, they, you, you get it from all of them. So, Yeah, uh, so I think they're very well-rounded, actually, mm-hmm. as characters. But it makes it still a very fascinating mix. Yeah. And they so all feel extremely distinct from one another. So yeah. even as I'm saying, like they share these elements, that doesn't mean that they're kind of blending together in any way. Right, right. So, and basically I've never answered your question as to which one's my favorite. It really depends <laughs> on the issue. <laughs> mm-hmm. There there are things about all of them that I, I, I relate to. Yeah, and I was thinking about, um, you know, sometimes it's also 
for coming of age, which you can tell right away in this story, like this is, sometimes I look at like, okay, what are these characters lacking that they're going to be learning, right? Mm-hmm. You know, what what is part of the transformation that's going to be happening? And in some ways, um, I think what they're lacking is often presented as a flaw. So with Daisy, it's like this innocent naivete seems to be part of it. But the way she gets treated in these first <laughs> four, she's like, you know what? She needs to be protected a little bit. Like, yeah, she, yeah, the, yeah. The, the world is not being nice to her. And it's not because she's innocent. It's just it, it's kind of viewed as like people think things are good ideas and they're not. Like, here, try these homeopathic, rest, you know, medicines <laughs> with with no guidance. Yeah. Uh, or here, take these drugs uh, when you've never taken drugs before. I'm like, no, th- that's not good friendship that she's getting from these people around her. <laughs> there, there are moments that that I just relate to so specifically. I'm, I'm trying to find. There was a panel in a later issue where Daisy's describing Esther that I think is just a perfect I, and i'll never find it you know there's what 12 volumes 13 volumes whatever mm-hmm. it is but uh daisy's describing uh, esther as the sort of the 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 classic uh classic gifted child i think she just she she the the uh, the the classic i i'm i'm blown i'm sorry um just that she she shines brightly like a star and then just completely burns out you know like there mm-hmm. that moment of just she oh there it is she's a classic high functioning introvert she lights up like a star that has to retreat to her cave for a period of deep solemnity and like okay that's me uh, <laughs> <laughs> um and, and has kind of always been me <laughs> I, I like that because i think sometimes when we use the labels of like introvert extrovert it's like well anyone who you know, is does well in front of people. Well, they're obviously the yeah. extrovert and anyone who's quieter, it's the introvert. And I've come to realize, yeah, I, I'm a little more introvert where like, I don't, I don't seek out social bonding and connections as much, but I have no problem being in front of a group and, yeah, and same here. Uh, and expounding. And yep. like, I don't feel uncomfortable in any way teaching in college classrooms or anything like that. But I also like, like during the pandemic, I was pretty fine yeah being shut down and, and that uh, that, that, me. that describes me perfectly and and yeah, yeah I, I always thought of myself as an extrovert and as i've gotten older i realized that's really not true it's just mm-hmm. most of the people i hung out with my closest friends were far more introverted than me so i by contrast <laughs> uh, so there's well, also I, a, think, I think it is a different kind of introvert wherever you know and again extroversion it's not just like are you comfortable in social situations or not it's like what what do you actually crave to like to feel recharged and i right. know some people who absolutely need those social interactions mm-hmm. like that's where they thrive uh internally as well as externally. yeah and, and there was a there was a time i i felt that more strongly than i do now some of that's mm-hmm. I've become more introverted as I've gotten older. The last few years have made us all more introverted just by the nature of the world. Uh, so, yeah, I, but I, I certainly relate to that, that idea, but I, like you, I've never had a problem getting in front of people and talking or any of that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. So, um, so I think Daisy, it's pretty easy to see for this coming of age, like what mm-hmm. transformation is being set up for her, you know, moving <laughs> from someone who is kind of caught off guard from, everything that's thrown at her uh, and doesn't quite know how to navigate. She's going to, she's going to shed some of the naivete. She gains some life experiences mm-hmm. for Esther, at least from the first issues, it feels like she's going to be shedding some of the drama is what needs to happen for her as a character. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, One of the, we discover over the course of this Esther in, in the second volume, I reread some of this in the second volume, Esther starts running second or third starts running into real trouble functioning in, in college. She's, you know, she's partying, she's doing all that classic, you know, She's doing everything except studying and taking the test right. and going to class. But over the course of the series, it's never really pointed out, but just she's brilliant. Like she can do this stuff. When she sits down to do it, 
she has no problem writing the paper she needs to write. Mm-hmm. Uh, but she just she never thinks of herself as a good student or any of that sort of thing. But she, she, she's panicking because of the parties and, and they say, that, yeah, she she needs to outgrow some of that drama stuff. But she's certainly more than capable. Uh, and I think her capabilities are overshadowed by her her flamboyance, even in her own mind. Yeah. Yeah, I, 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 I can sense that even in these four issues. I think that is being pretty clearly set up as a character trait uh, for her. And then Susan, it was like, I'm thinking about it, like what flaws or, uh, you know, what is she lacking that she may develop across the course of the series? Um, And I think some of it, at least in reading these first four issues, and you can tell me if if it feels off base, but I think she lacks some Mm self-awareness where she views herself as like this drama-free, grounded, logical, reasonable person. And in these first few issues, like, there's a lot of drama that's her doing. Oh, yeah. Oh, <laughs> that, ab- absolutely. That I, uh, she doesn't seem to recognize this is drama of my own making. It's, yeah. I, like if, if anything dramatic happens to her, she often seems to react as though like this is the world happening to me, not mm-hmm. me causing any of this. Susan comes across as, as a little hard uh, mm-hmm. in, in that first volume you know, that she's self-sufficient and and much more grounded than the other two and, and is a problem solver and all that sort of thing. And I think over the course of the series, uh, Daisy and Esther sand off some of those rough edges of Susan. They soften her up, uh, not in a bad way. They just make her more aware of her emotions, her need for, for friends. Mm-hmm. Um, the fact that you know, being self-sufficient isn't always necessarily the best thing. You need to rely on those around you. Right. And this this all expands out into the extended cast as well. I mean, it, the focus is on these three very definitely, but uh, the supporting cast, you know, Ed McGraw very specifically, but there are others who, who come and go over the course of the series that just play, you know, hugely significant roles uh, in, in the characters' lives. Um, you mentioned Ed having a crush on Esther and, and, and in some ways that just, it feels so cliche. He's the little nerdy boy who is helplessly in love with the, the vibrant, beautiful goth girl. Um, and to see that play out and their friendship and how they both deal with it and move past it, uh, it just it, it goes from this this cliche of you know it's, it, that whole the, the you know the fact that this could be creepy. Here's these little nerdy guy creeping on this beautiful goth girl, but he's genuinely her friend, um, and he can't help the way he feels and the way they they play that entire relationship out and their friendship and you, it does come to light and things are awkward and then they move past it and they're able to be friends. And it's just so well thought out. Um, and yeah, and I've seen this sort of thing happen in real life as well. And, and I, I think yeah, that's just one of the things that just so strikes me with the series is how often in reading it, I just feel like, Oh, I've had that, this experience. Oh, I know this person. Oh, that happened to me almost exactly like this. Uh, there's just this verisimilitude with with my life that really struck a lot of chords over the course of reading it. Yeah, I, th- I think the that sense of realness, even in the slightly larger than life and cartoony world, uh, is is a tone that seems really carefully calibrated. Um, where like the facial reactions are obviously like these are literal cartoons. Yeah, uh, and uh, the um, the stakes sometimes feel both very small, but also huge, mm-hmm. uh, which again is, 
this nod towards giant days. It is a, a, a time of life when that I think is a really common feeling uh, to experience. But having been through those days, like you, it was like, okay, I've never been in this exact situation, but I remember a lot of the feelings like this is evoking almost a nostalgia for an experience I never had. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. You know, I was yeah. never, you know, the college girl in, in Britain, uh, right, you know, experiencing right, right. These, these particular things, but I still felt uh, like a, a truth of, of, human experience mm. that was present I, in the story. I, I've definitely been the nerdy college boy with a crush on unattainable women. <laughs> uh, <laughs> yes. So well, was, um, and even uh, like when, when was this, this is a fairly recent, uh, what year was it? Did it start coming out? It was uh, like 2014, 2015. Okay. So I think yeah, almost 10 years ago. Yeah. Uh, but I, I was noticing like, okay, there's like, you know, uh, uh, one of the random people that they run to is like clearly like a hipster that was of that moment yeah, <laughs> in, yeah. in time uh, that w- was not at all, you know, really a thing in, in my college experience. But I'm like, mm. okay, I understand for that age group uh, at this time, that is like right. an iconic hallmark, right? you know, to, to have that particular figure present. The, there, There's a character later on who becomes roommate with uh, McGraw and Ed uh, by the name of Dean. And Dean is brilliant and pretentious and definitely on the spectrum and afflicted with a terrible personality uh, by, by his own admission. And there's this period where he he's wearing a kimono and has a man bun around the house. And, you know, it's just, um, that's his version of, of being hip, I guess. <laughs> so, but, but the man bun certainly wasn't a part of my college experience. Yeah. I mean, it is, I think capturing this idea that for a lot of people, college it's like okay i've moved out from home no one here knows who i am so mm-hmm. i can like create who i am and it's not just always discovering who you are sometimes it very often starts as like this performative thing of like i'm going to be this kind of person uh you know here do it you know mm-hmm. beca- because i can be because it's, it's new and different and uh i, I think Usually it's good for everyone to grow out of that phase. <laughs> yeah. Even yeah. if you're trying not to often like the real you is going to end up seeping around, around right. those edges. Right. Inevitably. Well, and those are the ways we experiment with identity. You know, that who mm-hmm. am I, you know, I'm for my entire life. I've been my parent's child. You know, I, we right. have those, so, those do I need scripts. to be a man bun wearing kimono, right, right, donning, right. a hipster. <laughs> right. And, and at any given era, you know, whether it's uh, the, the punks or the, the hipsters or the preppies or or the, the goth guy, girls, or right. the goth girls, or the guy in the raccoon jacket and twenty three mm-hmm. skidoo in the nineteen twenties. You know, there's there's always oh, been we've some... not had enough raccoon jacket references <laughs> on this podcast. Thank you for bringing that up. No, no problem. I I, 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 I I am old. I'm not quite that old. So. Oh, someday we'll do it like a Dobie Gillis episode, and we'll be able to talk about raccoon jackets. Uh. My my brother, who is uh, about close to 19 years older than I am only one, one sibling. Uh, I, I am told that his favorite show in the fifties was Dobie Gillis. And he had a cat by the name of Dobie at the time. So uh-huh. <laughs> that, that's the kind of reference that like our, our younger listeners yeah, are really going to appreciate. What are you talking about? Gilligan. Uh, it's Gilligan. Gilligan's Island. They don't know what that is either. So. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's, I, I think at least Gilligan, there's still like a little level of cultural literacy to like yeah. know what Gilligan's Island right. was. Dobie Gillis has kind of disappeared yeah. from the yeah. zeitgeist yeah. entirely. But, but come uh, on, Bob, Bob Denver is a beatnik in uh, in Dobie Gillis. Come on, <laughs> that's classic Americana. <laughs> <laughs> um, do you, are, the the plot of each one of these issues? It's fairly self contained, right? Mm-hmm. We get um, the. Uh, 
awkward encounter with McGraw is kind of the driving <laughs> tension of the first issue. Then issue two is they get they get colds. Issue three is uh, the pervy boys making the hot list. Um, and then uh, issue four is Daisy turning 18 and uh, maybe asking a girl out on a date, but it doesn't go well. Mm-hmm. Uh, so largely self-contained elements. I think the key is that each one of those, we, we learn more about the characters, but do you have a favorite plot element that comes up in these, in these issues? Um, I, so much of the these four set up everything that comes after. Um, so it really gets tied yeah, for you into into what's, yeah, what's looming. Yeah, very much so. At this point, it, it's hard for me to go back and think about what I thought about them when I first read them. Mm-hmm. Um, but I mean that that whole idea of pretty much every issue is self contained. Uh, that that continues. There's certainly plot threads that continue over the course of of the entire series. You know, things that are set up in one issue that resolve much farther down the line, but they tend to be character stuff as opposed to plot stuff. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I, and so it is, it's very, you can read any given issue and just get a story. And I, I like that about it. Yeah. It feels in, uh, it's definitely not the common comic book publishing style from mainstream publishers right now mm-hmm. uh, to, to tell the self-contained one issue uh, stories. It's, it's much more, well, for a good 20 years, it felt like it was the six issue arc is what they were all riding towards. And now it's become right. kind of the five issue story arc because yeah. they can uh, print five issues of material in a trade paperback and charge the same amount they were charging. For for six se- right, right. <laughs> well, and his his style of bad machinery, and some of this comes from bad machinery originally being published as an online comic. It's um, mm-hmm. it's in a more horizontal format than the traditional. Um, yeah, yeah, I guess it's landscape, uh, you would call it. And it's and same thing like he would publish you know a strip a day or a strip every other day or whatever and it's a it's very much a comic strip uh so there would be here's today's adventure but they were longer like they they are the way bad machinery collected are things like the adventure of the and then sub some subtitle so there would be an ongoing story that lasted for weeks and weeks online so there there is more of that here's the plot point that we are trying to resolve in this story arc as opposed to giant days where it's just much more the events of life around them. Mm-hmm. Um, thinking it through, I, I like the, uh, the issue where they get sick uh, quite a bit uh, oh. because it's just so simple. Mm-hmm. And yet uh, I feel like I knew each one of the characters really well by the end of that. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, and so that one stood out for me and, but maybe my favorite moment in all four was actually when McGraw comes across Susan in the dumpster diving <laughs> and, and like his instant reaction is just to be angry at these jerks. You're right. Uh, yeah. And then, but then also Susan saying, don't go be a white knight. Like, I don't need you to do that yeah. right now. Like I loved all of it uh, mm-hmm. except for Susan taking the photo of him and making him the cover boy for her. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, that was her def- street against men. Definitely a bad decision on her part. McGraw yeah. in some ways. And I, I think this is not unintentional. McGraw, you know, he has the mustache. He, he, he's fascinated by key making. He builds things. He, you know, carpentry. He Mm -hmm. is in so many ways, the most traditional male masculine figure in the series. Right. But his initial, but it, but it's a positive version of that sort of thing. He, he is not Mm -hmm. toxic masculinity. Here's this very overtly traditionally masculine character who gets really mad at the toxic masculinity of these boys making this list of the, the hotties on campus. But his reaction to it is the traditional male. I'm going to go beat him up. Yeah. Uh, and, <laughs> and Susan sort of stepping on that and, and preventing that it's, it's very much, you know, cons- 
it is such a the series has such feminine energy and you know, much like love and rockets this has been leveled at that as well there is so much feminine energy in this being written by you know a male writer um i, I think there's it's kind of remarkable i i think mm-hmm. just his his ability to capture what feel like very realistic female characters um but you know the male characters as well and and that balance is there of uh the say just McGraw being this traditional masculine figure in so many ways, not in the muscular lumberjack kind of way, just in terms of his interest and and way of being in the world. Uh, But playing in that issue in particular, playing that against these, the toxic masculinity and the obviously the immature puerile posturings of of these college boys. yeah, it plays off very nicely, and you also then still get the contrast of like Susan being assertive. Uh, yeah, you know, in in the face of his, you know, immediate, you know, hypermasculine response of yeah, you know, fight well, or flight. I'm choosing fight. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, and of of the three main characters, Susan has the most masculine energy of them. If if we want to use those terms, I mean, that all gets mm-hmm. gendered, and and that's a whole other conversation. But you know, Susan is the one who she doesn't she's uncomfortable wearing dresses and makeup, you know, her, her never, she never combs her hair. She, you know, she smokes, uh, where you know, Esther is just a fashion horse for the goth world. And, and Daisy is so traditionally cute, cute, cute. cute. <laughs> That's the only way to describe Daisy. Yeah, yep. absolutely. Um, so, you know, she, like Susan's masculine energy trumps his toxic masculine energy <laughs> in in that particular scene. You know, she she takes, she, she, oh, takes again, charge. she immediately becomes toxic herself. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. And then she makes a really bad decision and, and uses him in a really terrible way. And it's she's in in that moment. So she has the simmering anger at McGraw because of their teenage mm-hmm. crush situation, mm-hmm. right? I, but in this moment, she's not actually angry at McGraw. She's angry at these other jerk boys. She just right. conflates it with McGraw because he happens to be there, mm-hmm. you know, in that singular moment. And she has the simmering anger towards him. So I understand the bad decision. It's just a frustratingly bad decision. Yeah. Right. Right. Yeah. <laughs> and and their relationship comes and goes over the entire series as well. You know, of, yeah, what, it, of it what feels the two like of them are. There will be more to, yeah. to be read about. Oh, abs- <laughs> ab- absolutely, two, sure. yeah, <laughs> yep, with all of them. Well, and the, just the the complexity of friendships and relationships when you're at any age, but particularly at that age. I said once again, it all feels so important. This you know, Esther comes into this, and part of her backstory in in Scary Around is she was dating someone called the Boy. And they never named him. He just referred to as the boy. I think in a later series when he becomes the he, he goes to hell and becomes the steed of the character who becomes the queen of hell. But that's a whole other side story. <laughs> uh, um, Feels and, very disconnected from Jane. Yeah, very disconnected. But he just refers to him as the boy. And you know, Esther starts out in college. You know, in this first issue, she has just broken up from the only relationship she's ever had, and it was the most important relationship. And he was perfect. And they don't dwell on that, but that's what she's coming out of when we meet her. And then just you know, her drama field and, and meeting the people and her just being who she is and all these people having crushes on her and not seeing who she really is and her not knowing who she really is. Um, you know, Daisy's relationship, Daisy was homeschooled. She, she grew up in a – she was raised by her grandmother. We find out her, her parents were killed in an accident. Um, Daisy is incredibly sheltered and naive. Um, and they introduce it very early. She thinks she likes girls, um, but she's not sure. 
and seeing that develop, you know, her coming of age story in terms of figuring out who she is as a sexual being coming from mm-hmm. this incredibly sheltered, naive, and just some beautiful scenes of her conversations with her grandmother as that is taking place. Um, and so. Yeah. It, it, um, in only four issues, I felt like these three main characters, but then also several of the side characters, McGraw and Ed most distinctly were developed for me where it's like, okay, I know these people. And some of it is, I, I know people like this <laughs> or I knew people like this. Um, and, and, remember so distinctly that phase of life and i think but one other aspect that kind of clicked in our conversation what i think one reason why the stakes feel so big with things like you know mcgraw and susan or uh daisy like do i like this girl or not uh and ed like having his crush it's because there's that stage in life between like childhood crushes Mm -hmm. and adult marriage where you're making choices that very for for, you know, the, for most people the goal is like a lifelong commitment committed relationship mm-hmm. it's like okay well now like how do i navigate this transition this liminal time between uh you know high school boyfriend girlfriend and potentially marriage and and mm-hmm. this is someone i want to spend the rest of my life with and, and that's a very short period of time to go from you're dating someone for fun to someone that you're planning a life with and having children mm-hmm. with and, and all that stuff you know that's a tremendous amount of pressure for anyone to make those decisions any, at any time but and particularly if they're not age. making it themselves i think they're like there's a, a social awareness that there are people in my age group that are making those decisions right now yeah and 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 i think the world pressures all of us to do some of that like this is the time you're supposed to be doing exactly that uh you need to choose the career that you're going into and we'll spend for the, the rest, rest of your life, life. for the rest of your life. <laughs> uh, you, you need to find the person you're going to be with and have children with for the rest of your life. Uh, you're meeting friends that, you know, that feels different than your, your high school friends or your playground friends or whatever. These are the people who become some of the most significant life changing people in your life. And, and you're, you're hoping you maintain those contacts and, you know, speaking from the experience of someone older, some of them you do, and some of them just disappear. You know, some of the mm-hmm. most important people in your life, just time they, and distance. They were and very life that phase of your life. Yep. Not, it turns out your whole life. Yeah. Yeah. And, and they're still incredibly important. I think back to people who were, and you know, social media, I've reconnected with a lot of them, but we're not who we were then. It's nice to know where they are and that they're well, mm-hmm. but we will never be those people again. Right, where like you, you'd stay up till two in the morning talking about the movie that you saw, yeah, right? You know, stuff like right, that. <laughs> life, the universe, and everything. Yeah, you know, yeah. Uh-huh. The, those all night conversations in the dorm room, or you know, just with those groups of friends, where just every conversation feels like the biggest, most important thing ever. Um, right, that you're you're having insights that are like changing the way you view the world. Yeah. No one's ever had these insights before. It turns out a lot of people have, but yeah, that's right. okay. Yeah. In that right. moment right. for you. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's huge. And, and it's, you know, I still miss some of that. You know, the, mm-hmm. there is an intensity to that, um, that, that the youthful enthusiasm. I mean, I wouldn't go back to, to those days. You know, I, I wouldn't, there's so many things in that uh, you've lived through. You don't need to do again. You've learned those lessons. But I miss some of that intensity. I, I miss those moments with just those kinds of friends. And I still have friends and we still have a great time. We still have conversations. But no, we're no longer in the figuring out who the hell we are or how the universe works phase of our life. Yeah, I think intensity is a really good description because mm-hmm. everything 
is so intense. The stakes are so big, uh, and no one actually knows how to navigate it yet. Yeah, because uh, everyone everyone's still figuring it out and figuring out who they will be and how the world works and what their place is in the world. And we we create these situations where all the people figuring out those things are all together. <laughs> yeah, know? yeah. Uh, well, let's let's throw them all together in a big college setting, or you know, mm-hmm. and and see how this works out. Well, Wayne, I am really glad that we got a chance to have yeah. you on the podcast and to talk about Giant Days. Yeah. Do you have any final thoughts about Giant Days as we wrap up? Uh, please go read it. Uh, read all of it. It's so much fun. I mean, for all the stuff we're talking about, the, these heavy ideas and the, the character development and the plot points and all that stuff, it's also just a tremendous amount of fun. It was a book that I look forward to you know, on the shelves of you – know, superheroes and horror comics and science fiction comics and, and all this stuff that I do thoroughly enjoy. It's a book that just genuinely made me happy when I read it. And that doesn't seem to happen in this way a lot. Uh, so I, I recommend it just on that level. It's a book that makes me happy. Well, I, I found it completely charming. Uh, the art style, the tone of the series, and how well-developed all the characters were. Mm-hmm. I was wowed in how much I got in only four issues. Yeah. And my mind is blown to discover how wide the world that this is a slice of yeah. actually is. And yep. completely different genres that other texts in this same shared universe. Yeah, uh, I mean, yeah when, when, you finish, um, when you finish Giant Days, go find Bad Machinery. When you finish Bad Machinery, you can probably find scary go round online someplace um if you go to scarygoround.com he's doing new comics all the time uh i i'm getting caught up on the most recent adventures of uh, charlotte Grote right now uh there was a series that boom published called wicked things the stars charlotte who's one of the main characters in bad machinery and just this week a new book by him and max Aaron came out called i believe the great british bump off uh, and and it, it, it's a British baking show takeoff, and it features a character by the name of Shauna, who was one of the main characters in Bad Machinery, who we haven't seen for a number of years. Uh, so I'm really looking forward to reading that as well. His, he has a series called Steeple that uh, takes place in a, a ocean town in, in Great Britain, and it's demons and, and mermen and weirdness, and it's set in the same universe, and Charlotte shows up there at some point uh so there there's so much uh there's so much and it's all so much fun uh it just allison's sense of comedic timing there there are moments that i laugh out loud just genuinely lol <laughs> i mean it definitely sounds like the creative output is is just consistent uh and that that allows you know both a breadth of so many different kinds of stories to tell but then i think you end up with a, a depth uh in terms of characters, but also in terms of the skill as a storyteller. Right? Very you know, much so. Yeah. You see him grow so home. much. Yeah. You see him grow so much over this as an artist, but also as a storyteller. Um, yeah. It just re- really envious of his, his output and his skill. All right. Well, Wayne, you are a first time guest on the protagonist podcast. And that means we're going to ask you the uh, dinner guest question. Yeah. We love to celebrate great characters. If you could hang out with a handful of characters for a dinner party, who would you want to hang out with for an evening? Yeah, I, I have a tough time with this. I tell everybody I have a tough time. If you ask me my list of favorite anything, you know, favorite movies, favorite records, favorite books, I have a really tough time settling on anything. I start just thinking about fictional characters, and they're fictional characters I'm incredibly fond of, but then the idea of, but do I want to sit down and have dinner with them? And that, that adds <laughs> this whole other element of, boy, there's there's some really messed up characters out there that I adore, but 
dinner would probably not be fun. Uh, <laughs> I want to invite them into my house. <laughs> yeah, right. Exactly. Exactly. So I, I've come up with three that I feel pretty set on, which is a small dinner party uh, and, and maybe a fourth, but you know, we'll, we'll see. So I'm going to start with um, just from the world of comics. Uh, Dick Grayson, Nightwing is probably my, my favorite DC character. and is one of my all time favorite characters in general. Uh, I think sitting down with, with Nightwing, uh, him knowing that I know who he is and everything, just because of, I, I think Dick Grayson is a fun, well-adjusted person would be fun to hang out with, but also just his stories of the DC universe, his personal interactions with those people could be fascinating for me as a, a comics fan. Um, I, I love that in the bat family of characters, every single one of them is more well-adjusted than Bruce Wayne. Yeah, absolutely. Yes. Yeah. And I think Dick is probably the most well-adjusted of, mm -hmm. of the bunch. If you haven't done a Dick Grayson episode, I, I will come back and do that. At some we have point. not, and I will pencil it in. The, the current series is really, really good. Um, my, my favorite Dick Grayson story in a long, long time. Um, but I, I think, and I, I don't have a Marvel equivalent of that. My, my longtime favorite Marvel character is Hawkeye. Um, I think he'd be good to go have a beer with. I don't know that I want him in my house for dinner. Uh, <laughs> so, so I'm going to start out with Dick Grayson. The second one is uh, one of my all-time favorite TV shows that I have been re-watching recently is Northern Exposure uh, from the early 1990s. I love that show. And uh, Chris in the Morning, is yep. Chris, Chris Stevens, is a character I, I, I relate to so strongly and always have. He is more like me than most characters in fiction. Um, so I want to invite him over for dinner. The, the only problem with that is I think it might just be like talking to myself. Mm -hmm. uh, so he, I don't think I've ever answered the dinner guest question, but if I ever did, Chris mm -hmm. from Northern Exposure is on my list. Yeah, he just I, he serves as a Greek course on that show. Uh, that's something I didn't really think of in that term until rewatching this stuff. He'll just be in the radio station commenting. I mean, he, he plays a part in episodes, but so many episodes, he just in the radio station commenting on the people and what's going on around him. Uh, very much a, a Greek course, but you know, he, he comes from Wheeling, West Virginia. I grew up about 25 miles from there. I mean, the character as well as the actor, John Corbett, I grew up about 25 miles from there. My dad worked there. Chris and I are the, the same age. Uh, he tells about his backstory and, his was a little bit more fraught with peril than mine was yeah. um, <laughs> more criminal than mine was, but, but boy, do I know those people and recognize those anecdotes. Um, but just his uh, autodidactic, you know, the fact that yeah. he has learned so much and, you know, I've had more schooling than him, but I do exactly what he does. I just, I get fascinated with something and I read it and I'm the guy who in the middle of a conversation starts quoting Carl Jung for, no good reason, uh, much like him. So I'm going to have Chris over for dinner. Um, the the third one, this is very specific from a, a I don't even want to say series of books. There's an author by the name of Charles DeLint, who is one of the earliest people that the term urban fantasy was associated with. Now, his urban fantasy is not Harry Dresden. It's, it's not uh, action heroes fighting monsters and demons. It's just he has a city called Newford. And it's just a world where mythological beings exist and gnomes live in the sewers and uh, Native American gods walk the streets. And But his stories are about normal people who live in this world and have these encounters. Uh, like I, it, 
it really hits me because it feels like my life. He has created this community of characters. Uh, he has a number of short story collections, which I recommend is the best place to start because you get to know his, much like Giant Days, this enormous cast of recurring characters uh, who will show up in novels. Um, you know, And you'll be reading a novel and they're at the diner and Wendy comes over to wait on him. You're like, oh, I know Wendy because you read a short story about her in one of these other collections. But one of his recurring characters is a woman by the name of Jilly Coppercorn. Uh, Jilly is an artist and one of the most lovable people I've encountered in fiction. Um, and I want to have Jilly over because we could talk art, but she's also had all these experiences with uh, the supernatural in, in a positive way. Uh, Newford, much like uh, Sicily, Alaska, Northern Exposure, Newford is a fictional city I want to live in. And you know, we read so many books and see so many movies and like these are fascinating to watch but dear god i don't want to live in the marvel universe because galactus will show up <laughs> you know whereas sicily and newford are places i would like to live because i like the people there uh and mm -hmm. and jilly is very high on that that list of people in that in that world that i would think would just be a fascinating dinner guest because of her experiences um and and, yeah. and and while she's coming, her her sometimes boyfriend Jordy should probably come over as well because he he's like Chris. He's a fictional character I relate to. Um, uh, and then the fourth one, I this this gets difficult because of the the incarnations. I'm gonna say Doctor Who just because of the stories he could tell. But then you get in the question of which one. Yeah. And I don't know that my favorite one would be the best dinner guest. I, I'm a big fan of Capaldi, but I think uh, David Tennant would probably be the better <laughs> dinner guest. <laughs> It feels true what you're saying. <laughs> <laughs> so that's that's what I've got today. <laughs> okay. Well, uh, I like that. And um, I wasn't familiar with that world that you described with your third guest. And yeah. that's one reason why I enjoy this question is I often get like recommendations yeah, for and, stories and that I'm not familiar with. Yeah, I've been thinking about it. I knew this question was coming. So I've been thinking about it a few days. And I just walked past a my bookshelf that has all the Charles DeLint books on it. And and just it hit me. Oh, Jilly. Jilly would be great. <laughs> and and yes, a high recommendation for Charles DeLint. It's, it's it's just a wonderful world to live in. His His stuff is his plots are so character driven that he rarely, he never really does the, Oh, the great evil Lord is going to destroy the world and we have to fix this. It's just people engaged in human relationships and there happens to be magic in the world they live in. So. All right. Well, thank you again, Wayne, for joining us for this episode. For Thanks for having me. Yeah. Oh, yeah. For show notes and links to all the other great Dueling Genre shows, you can go to DuelingGenre.com and please subscribe to the Protagonist Podcast in your podcast app of choice. And please leave us a review. That really helps us out. We'd like to thank Scott Tofty, who composed our theme music. Wayne, where could listeners find more of you? Uh, mostly on the, the podcast that you've been on, Vox Popcast, which uh, if you look that up pretty much on all the uh, the various services, it's at Vox Popcast. Uh, that's the most place. I do have a, a website. It's Wayne-Wise.com where you can read a blog i've been doing fairly regularly at one point and less regularly recently but going back to like 2009 i have lots and lots of my thoughts and ramblings on comics and movies and northern exposure and giant days and lots of other stuff so that's probably the best place i am really terrible at the social media thing i i have an instagram account that i post some pictures on i really don't use twitter much at all um, so all right. Well, thank you again for joining us. Yeah, this is great. 
Thank you for downloading this episode. We'll be back next week to discuss another great character in a great story. Until then, so long. Sorry. <coughs> Did not mean to cough into the mic. Sorry, Wayne. <coughs> I'm sorry. <clears throat>